love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So Kat walks in right before we start recording and just says, how do you feel about long-term care facilities? And I thought to myself, it's a little early for this conversation, isn't it? Do you mean in the day or in the life? I mean in the life. Eh, who knows? <laughs> but then we got off into a really interesting discussion on uh, whether or not we wanted to be unplugged if, uh, you know, things get bad. And I said, well, you know, obviously I, I, I want that to be uh, the case. I want to be unplugged. And you said, no, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I would expect you to unplug me. Anyway, as I, long as you're not wiping my ass, I'm <laughs> in a good place, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are the types of conversations that take place just before we record. I think it's important to get into a good headspace just to feel good about things. You oh, know? I see. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. What would you prefer we talked about? How about this? Is it possible... That here in the United States, we're under attack from an alien species. Ancient alien theorists say yes. <laughs> as hard as it might be to believe, the argument can be made that yes, we are under attack from an alien species. The for, argument can be made. <laughs> for millions of years, these creatures have existed or did exist in what is now North America. Now, wait, okay. Yeah. What do you mean by alien? Yeah, we're getting there. Oh, okay. These creatures existed in what is now North America, living largely undetected underground until about 10,000 years ago. And then they just disappeared. No trace has been found of them for thousands of years, right up until about the 1600s when they started to reappear. Oh my God, you're talking about worms, aren't you? Talking about earthworms. We've all seen them. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that earthworms are trying to colonize Earth from another planet. You're so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, in fact, an invading alien species in North America. Now, let me explain. According to Biomed Central, the earliest ancestor of all living earthworms probably lived over 209 million years ago. 
This would make earthworms about as old as mammals or dinosaurs. Okay. Research has determined that uh, there was a divergence of northern and southern hemisphere subgroups of worms that led to two major branches of earthworms. This happened somewhere between 178 and 186 million years ago. It's due largely to the breakup of the supercontinent Pangaea. And that means that earthworms probably inhabited what is now Antarctica before that continent drifted south and became a frozen wasteland. So continental drift broke the earthworms into two separate branches. Northern hemisphere worms thrived in what is now North America for millions of years. And even though they lived for millions of years, they're very much the same as they were when they first developed. They haven't evolved much. They're pretty efficient the way they are. Mm. So they stayed pretty much the same for millions of years. And the northern hemisphere branch of the earthworm species flourished. And then somewhere between 10 and 12,000 years ago, they completely disappeared from the fossil record in North America. With the exception of what's now southeastern United States, like Georgia, Florida, South Carolina region. Okay. Thousands and thousands of years would pass. And then suddenly, around 1,600 earthworms started showing up again in the United States and throughout North America. What happened? That's what I was just going to ask you. Well, two very big events are responsible. 10 to 12,000 years ago, we were in the throes of an ice age. And as glaciers continued to expand southward, they began to encroach more and more upon what is now Canada and the U.S. Mm -hmm. This had two major effects on earthworms. Number one, the cold weather, of course. It froze the ground, made it uninhabitable for earthworms, and of course froze and killed them. And then after thousands of years, when the glaciers began to recede, the ground underneath that was exposed had been completely stripped of soil because of the glaciers. There, there was not enough soil for the worms to repopulate oh. in. Now, as I mentioned, there was a small pocket, the southeast region of the U.S., that did survive, but this was such an insignificant amount that they made zero to no inroads in migrating northward as the topsoil improved over the millennia. I wonder what earthworm migration would look like anyway. Wouldn't it be great to have like a time-lapse photography yes. over like thousands of years? I would love that. I would love that. Like on Ancestry.com when it shows you the little boop, 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 boops of where your yeah. ancestors came from. Mm -hmm. I want to see that except for with earthworms and they're like beep, 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 beep. That's the sound that earthworms, earthworms make. make. Yeah. <laughs> so why after 10,000 years or more of there being absolutely no earthworms in the vast majority of upper North America, did they just start reappearing again in and around the 1600s? Well, it's no coincidence that the date coincides with the European colonizing of North America. In the early 1600s, in pretty short order, the English settled a colony in Chesapeake Bay region. That, of course, was Jamestown, and that was 1607. In 1608, the French built Quebec and in the same year, the Dutch began settling the region that's uh, now known as New York. Of course, originally New York was New Amsterdam. Another generation went by. Plymouth Colony was settled in 1620. The Massachusetts Bay Company settled in 1629. The Company of New France in 1627. And of course, the Spanish had settled what they called La Florida 
which of course is modern day Florida, the capital being St. Augustine. That was as early as like the 1550s. Now, are you suggesting that Europeans brought worms with them? I'm not only suggesting it, I'm saying that that's a fact. Like on purpose? Not necessarily. You've got European colonization going on with major settlements as far north as Quebec and as far south as St. Augustine, but these settlers weren't importing the earthworms from Europe, intentionally anyway. The ships that they sailed in were quite small, and any extra storage space would usually be occupied by supplies and food rations, not earthworms. The answer is really quite simple. These old sailing ships required ballast. Now, ballast was a heavy material like gravel, sand, iron, lead, rocks placed in the low end of the vessel to improve its stability. Oh. Now, a common inexpensive ballast was simple topsoil. Why wouldn't you just build the boat better (laughs) so that you didn't have to fill it with stuff? Ultimately, I think they did. But at the time, to keep those small early colonial exploration ships that uh, really are quite tiny, in order for them to remain somewhat stable in the open ocean, they had to put weight in the bottom of it to kind of pull it down into the water a little bit more. Would those ships not have needed that much weight in the bottom if they were sailing elsewhere and maybe that's why they were built a certain way for a certain type of sailing and then when it was like open sea time Mm. they're like well let's fill this thing with dirt yeah i'm i'm thinking i'm not an expert on that but that does make sense you're claiming you are not not a transatlantic boat expert no i am not although i played one on tv (laughs) The most inexpensive ballast available was simple topsoil. They shoveled it into the hull of these ships before they would voyage out for the transatlantic journeys. And without knowing, they were also shoveling in earthworms. Many of these ships met their demise either on the coast of North America or just offshore. And as the ships deteriorated, they released the soil as well as the earthworms. Oftentimes, when a ship was deemed no longer seaworthy by settlers, they would offload the ballast and use it to plant their gardens with. Okay. It was rich European soil, and that made it attractive to them. But that's not the only way that worms migrated. Occasionally, ships would uh, bring to the colonies from Europe various types of trees and plants to introduce to North America. The earthworms would hitch a ride in the root balls, This is how earthworms, once nearly eradicated from North America for thousands of years, started to make a comeback. Wow. It's interesting because they were native and the Europeans bringing that shit helped reintroduce them to this land while also bringing more invasive species to (laughs) this land. It's really interesting. The topsoil had greatly improved since the Ice Age. And the invading European earthworms had it pretty much all to themselves. In just a few centuries since their introduction, they have completely colonized North America to the point where they're beginning to cause harm. Earthworms? In the forest region. Now that, to me, kind of, it shocked me because I was always brought up to believe that earthworms were good for the soil. And yeah, aeration, blah, yes, blah, blah. Yes, Gardeners do, of course, love earthworms. They make for a healthy garden. They turn the soil over and, and make the nutrients easier for fruits and vegetables to uh, access. But in forests, 
plants evolved a different way to get their nutrients from the ground. So when earthworms convert the nutrients to an easier access form, it can favor invasive plant species that move in and take over. Aha. Uh-huh. And this process is known to endanger birds as well as plants like orchids. They also speed up erosion, worms do, and have caused irrigation ditches and tunnels to collapse over time. But this alien invasion is not all bad. It's been estimated that the Earth's soil contains about 2.5 trillion tons of carbon. When the earthworms churn up the soil, it seems to have an impact on the soil's ability to store carbon. Earthworms will excrete some of the soil that they've consumed into tough little pellets that are called casts. And casts take far more time to break down, essentially locking in and storing the carbon. Oh. So in the long term, this invasion could actually have a positive impact on the environment. In the short term, it's causing some problems. All hail our worm overlords. This reminds me of a book that I read years ago because I was trying to woo you. Um, (laughs) Because you had told me about Dragons of Eden and how interesting it was. And I was, I had never read it. I was familiar with Carl Sagan, but I didn't know this book. And so I went to Mr. Paperback, our, (laughs) our local friendly bookstore, and I purchased Out of Eden. Out of Eden being a book about invasive species. Oh. And I read it and I came in and I was like, so I read Out of Eden last night and it was really good. And I wah, wah, wah. And you're like, that sounds neat. <laughs> then it took me a bit, but I figured it out that it, there were two different books. And, so uh, it, in an attempt to impress me, mm-hmm. you read an entire book in an evening that you would probably ha- never have read. Oh, no, I found it very interesting. I, I mean, if someone had said, hey, this book is about blah, 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 and I think you might like it, I would have read it. Okay. But probably, no, I wouldn't have gone to Mr. Paperback and <laughs> picked it up and read it in an evening mm-hmm. if I wasn't trying to court you. Yeah, well, it worked, ultimately. <laughs> Your long game, just like the earthworms, had a good result. My source information, Smithsonian Magazine, Biomed Central, EarthSky.org, Wikipedia, and EcosystemOnTheEdge.org. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer and now that thing in the middle did you know the first photograph ever taken was created in france between 1826 and 1827 for nearly 200 years man has been taking photographs but it's been said that nearly 10 percent of all photographs ever taken in history happened in the last 12 months, which is why we're always running out of room on our smartphones. And back to the inbox of oddities. Oh my goodness. Once again, I'm advocating for a full inbox of oddities episode. Please, let's do it. Okay. Okay. I got a message. (laughs) Gosh, that was easy. I Uh loved it. All right, I got a message on Instagram, I believe, from Madison. Hello, I'm messaging you because I had my first boo effect today. I was listening to the episode where Kat talks about finding a dildo on the side of the road. Later, I was taking the trash out, (laughs) and there was a dildo in my trash can. What? It was still looped up and everything. Oh, no. I died laughing, and I had to share. Love what you guys do. Keep up the good work, Madison. Well, I do appreciate the fact that whoever disposed of the dildo did so responsibly. (laughs) Instead of throwing it in the street. Don't just leave your dildos in the street. It's funny, one of our best-selling t-shirts in our uh, merch store is the one that Kat designed. It's very simple. It just says, I hope Bill Murray is having a great day. An original design. And Elizabeth sent us this email. Dear Kat and Jethro, I'm a pastry chef at a restaurant that is frequented by Bill Murray. (gasps) So naturally, I purchased your I hope Bill Murray is having a great day t-shirt to add to my work shirt rotation. He's a really cool guy and on occasion he'll swing by the kitchen to yell at us to get back to work (laughs) or 
hang out at the bar and help polish glassware. Doesn't that sound just like him? It does sound like Bill Murray, yeah. He's friends with the owner, so he kind of has a run of the place. He's been in a few times this summer, but it wasn't until last Wednesday that he popped into the kitchen. Unfortunately, I had worn the shirt the night before, and it was in the laundry basket. So when one of the servers tipped me off that he was there, I panicked. I am so hooked. I am like on edge. I want to know what happens. It's a seasonal gig with housing on property. So as soon as she told me he arrived, I ripped off my apron and raced up the stairs. (laughs) I threw on my mildly soiled Bill Murray t-shirt and sprinted back to the kitchen as Bill was engaging the cooks on the hotline in conversation about the menu. As he was ready to leave, the owner said, hey Bill, did you read our pastry chef's shirt? He looked at me, he read it, chuckled and said, I am having a great day. (laughs) Bill Murray saw your t-shirt, sweetie. Oh, that pleases me. And then we had a brief conversation about the dessert menu before he rejoined his friends at the table. After the meal, he came back in and he told us that it had been the best food he'd ever had relative to the amount of alcohol he's consumed. (laughs) I just thought you guys would like to know that Bill Murray saw Kat's t-shirt. Oh my goodness. I didn't have time to tell him about the box of oddities, but I'll try next time I see him. Naturally, he's the life of the party when he's around, so it can be hard trying to talk to him. Oh yes, of course. Thanks for your endlessly entertaining podcast. I love it so much. It's gotten me through a ton of long kitchen days. I frequently bombard my coworkers with awesome facts you share. And one of the servers even added the stiff drink tidbit from Box 303 to her tableside chat. Oh my goodness. So cool. Uh, Wishing you the best, Liz. Oh, then she says, P.S. The restaurant is the outermost inn on Martha's Vineyard. If you're ever in the neighborhood, hit us up. Yeah, absolutely will, for sure. Okay, booking my flight. (laughs) (laughs) But but in the summer, when it's Bill Murray season. (laughs) That's so cool. I thought you might enjoy hearing that. I sure did. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality. Plus, 
Tons of extra themed content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. So it was either listen to us or that learn to speak French in just 10 days podcast? Slacker. This is the Box of Oddities. I learned the other day about a British television dating game show on Channel 4 called Naked Attraction. Now, this is a show that involves a clothed person faced with six naked people hidden in booths, (laughs) and they decide who they want to date based on the contestant's genitalia. Is this a long-running series? or It's, it's relatively new. Okay. Uh, it's based entirely on the clothed person's opinion of the contestant's bits. And the contestant then eliminates someone who has to come out of their box and say goodbye after being eliminated based on their genitals. Uh, wait, are they still naked? When yeah. They, oh, my... Okay, so from from there, the curtain slowly rises with each elimination round until the contestant gets to see the full picture of whoever is <laughs> left. And then at the end, the, the, the clothed contestant also gets naked, and then they, they meet the person that they chose based on okay. their parts, wow. and then they have a nice conversation. Naked? Yeah. This is exploitive, <laughs> incredibly childish. And why don't we get it here in the U.S.? Because <laughs> I would watch this. I thought we'd take a look at some other game shows. Oh. New and old from around the world. Because once I got looking into this, wow, things get weird. And it's not just like kids these days, right? Do you remember a show called Three's a Crowd? No. Okay. So it was an American game show originally packaged by Chuck Barris. Oh, the Productions. gong show guy. Also, The Newlywed Game. And this first aired in 1979. It did bore a lot of similarities to The Newlywed Game. So it pitted newly married couples against each other. This is The Newlywed Game. Mm-hmm. Pitted newly married couples against each other in a series of revealing question rounds to determine how well or how not well those couples knew each other. But in this game... Three is a crowd. It's three sets of husband, wife, secretary teams. And the game starts with (laughs) men answering questions, personal and intentionally potentially divisive questions. Then the secretaries are brought back to answer the questions. Okay. Then the wives are brought back to answer the questions. I see. And the whole idea is... Who knows this man better, his secretary or his wife? Oh, my God. And it was like divorce central. Well, I was going to say that they had the newlywed game. They should have just called this the divorce game. For real. In his book, What Were They Thinking? The 100 Dumbest Events in Television History, (laughs) David Hofstad ranks the show at number 94. He wrote that it offered the chance to watch a marriage dissolve on camera (laughs) years before Jerry Springer. It only lasted 22 episodes. But some shows didn't last nearly that long, like The Chamber. The Chamber was an American game show that aired on Fox in January 2002, and it did not last long. Why? Well, I'm guessing some people 
didn't like the torture chamber aspect of the show. Oh. And in my notes it, here, I put a little shrug emoji. <laughs> Just. Because why? <laughs> Two contestants start the game. It's always male against female. And they're given a category by the host and the opportunity to earn points to move on to the next round. Now, before they move on to the, the main game, they are given the opportunity to scootle. If you want to take $500 and scootle, great, good for you, mm-hmm. enjoy your day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nobody did that, though. No. They all went to the chamber. <laughs> now, the contestants were strapped into a chair with their arms raised over their head. And during a pre-game setup, the computer would choose whether they get into a hot or a cold chamber. And the goal is to answer as many questions and last in the chamber as long as possible. Both the hot and cold chamber featured wind gusts of up to 40 miles per hour, air cannons periodically blasting toward the contestants with up to 140 miles per hour winds. Wow. Simulated earthquakes increasing in intensity, electrodes contracting their muscles, and oxygen levels descending to 70%. Oh my God. Can you imagine the packet of waivers that they had to sign? I cannot. Holy shit. Nor can I imagine signing them. (laughs) That's a question even more difficult to answer. In the hot chamber, the internal temperature began at 110 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 43 Celsius. And it increased toward a maximum of 150 degrees Fahrenheit. The chair would rotate back and forth, up and down, through... 270 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. And finally, it would spin in complete circles. The player would also be surrounded by jets shooting flames around them. And beginning in the second episode, they also started making it really stinky inside the chamber. Wow, they really upped their game. In the cold chamber, the internal temperature began at 30 degrees Fahrenheit. That's negative one Celsius. And decreased toward a minimum of negative 20. The player would occasionally be sprayed with water, causing ice to form on their body. Jeez. So, yeah, it lasted for three episodes. I guess they recorded six. (laughs) But it was said that plans for future chambers centered around themes like electric shock or insects. How did this get greenlit? I do not know. Moving right along. Candy or not candy? (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. While the actual translation of the title of this show just doesn't work, many have agreed on calling it Candy or Not Candy. It's a Japanese game show, and it's kind of akin to that show that we've watched once called Is It Cake? Right. And that's where the celebrity judges are shown the contestants' cake alongside real objects, and they have to identify which one is cake. I love the idea of a show based on a meme. Anyway, so this is different because the contestants had to bite various objects, and if they were lucky, it was chocolate. (laughs) And if not, it was just like a shoe or a doorknob (laughs) or... Poo? I don't think it was ever poo. Why would you go straight to poo? I don't know. Remember the old Tom Green uh, MTV show? Yeah. I can't remember exactly the premise, but uh, one of the, he had somebody on, and it was a spin the wheel kind of thing, and it came down to you had to eat pickles out of a jar, but there were two jars. One was just pickles in a jar, and the other was pickles, and the jar was full of pee. 
No. Yeah. So maybe that's where how my mind went to. Pee, though? Yeah. Someone ate pee pickles? Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. Oh, that's good television. I don't... Listen, I don't... As a people... I don't necessarily love where we are right now. <laughs> I'm just saying it's concerning. Mm-hmm. And okay. Be cute or get pie. Um, this is another Japanese game show. And uh, it starts off with a number of women sleeping on the ground. And one by one, they are awoken. Um, by various means. Sometimes it's a little tap on the shoulder. Mm. Sometimes it's symbols being smashed over their head. Uh Sometimes it's being kicked, whatever. It's various ways of being woken up. And when it is their turn, they must wake up in the cutest way possible. And if the judges deem that they're not cute enough, they get smacked in the face with pie. (laughs) Which is just disgusting. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) How do you even... What's the name of it again? Be cute. Be cute or get pie. Okay. (laughs) That should be your next t-shirt design. (laughs) Repo games. Now, this is a game that I had not heard about until yesterday. I was doing a little YouTubing on the subject, and I found some clips from this show. It was an American game show aired by Spike TV, and it was about the repossession of vehicles, which is a strange concept, if you ask me. Yeah, that's not something that really I would think people would find enjoyable. No. Um, The catch was that they would go to repossess your vehicle, but if you were home and you could answer a series of trivia questions, you got to keep your car. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess the network paid off their outstanding debts. Not clear on that exactly. But if you weren't able to answer the question successfully, which most people were not, their vehicle was repoed, <laughs> which is vi- It's straight up yeah, vile. It is. It sounds funny on paper, but yeah, you're, you're really exploiting people who are down on their luck. Yeah, there should be a team of people who have to, you have to pass your game show idea passed and it's just the exploitation team mm, and they mm. have to say like no this is not exploitive or yeah it's hilarious it's repo games yeah right <sighs> side note uh repo games one angry contestant ended up facing a charge of attempted murder for shooting at the production van after he did <laughs> not get his questions right <laughs> no yeah i don't condone you know firearm play like that but uh again maybe it's just funnier on paper yeah speaking of exploitation do you remember the show queen for a day i do remember that that was uh rip taylor hosted that i don't know i think so i think it was well it started as a radio game show on the mutual radio network in April of 1945, and then it moved to L.A. and uh, then ran on NBC from 1956 to 1960, and then on ABC from 1960 to 1964. Okay, I'm thinking of something else. Okay. Now, if you asked me, how long do you think this game show ran for after Mm. telling me the synopsis? Yeah. I would say nearly zero. It featured disadvantaged female contestants pleading for badly needed items. A wheelchair for the disabled son, 
a phone to reach out to her deployed husband, therapeutic equipment to help a chronically ill child. Wow. Many women would break down sobbing as they described how disadvantaged they were, their, their plights in life, how terrible their situation was. Great TV. And then at the end of the show, whichever woman received the uh, highest audience applause by way of an applause meter. Uh-huh. Which is a highly sensitive, very delicate piece of equipment for sound measurement. Pretty sure it's not. No. And then whoever won would be deemed queen for a day. They were showered with gifts, the the thing that they needed. I guess it was, that yeah. was it. Wow. That was just. I remember the title, but I, I, I've never seen that in reruns anywhere. It was very successful. It had many international versions produced. The idea that it lasted for as long as it did is completely bananas. So speaking of unbelievable that this was actually a show, mm-hmm. Susunu Denpa Shonen. It's a Japanese torture reality series. Go on. And it literally ruined lives and was canceled at the behest of the Japanese government. Oh my God. One of the most infamous segments followed a man named Nasubi. He was an aspiring comedian and he signed up to be on this game show. What happened next was he was put into an apartment with no ability to contact the outside world. All he had were various magazines, just magazines, and he had to use those magazines to win items that he needed. He had to win his food. Now, the grossest thing about this is Nasubi was under the impression that he was being filmed and that this would be edited and aired later when he was done with the show. But in fact, it was live streamed. Oh, my God. And he was there for a year. Holy, it's like the Truman Show. It reminds me of Squid Games, because after the year was over, he was able to win enough to be set free until he was forced to continue the game in a different location. He was losing his mind on television. People watched him talk to teddy bears, slowly deteriorate. And then when he finally did get out of the show, he was ostracized because he was like this this loony. So it literally ruined his life. Um, that was the grossest one I could find. I mean, Fear Factor was pretty bad, but mm. this is worse. <laughs> yeah. I got my information from Ranker, Wikipedia, Timeline, and MovieWeb. Most of those were horrible. Yeah. But there's a few I might be interested in watching. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit. But, uh, yeah. Naked Attraction. Yeah. Yeah. There was an episode recently that I've seen come up in some news stories where they talked about the host and the female contestant being shocked when the curtain raised on one of the boxes to show a man with what appeared to be a third leg. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. All righty then. Yeah. Did he get chosen? No. He didn't. She was concerned for her well-being. <laughs> I can I can understand that. <laughs> wow. All right. We mentioned our merch store earlier. If you want to get your own, I hope Bill Murray is having a great day t-shirt or any of the Box of Oddities merch that's available. You can find the link at our website. Theboxofoddities.com is where you can find all that info. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. 
and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.